0: that again this time because i'm a little dizzy with my ears being clogged up so i suspect i'll be closer to the podium today to keep my balance if i do happen to go down i'm trusting you (laughs) to use your discernment whether you should stand up and say thank you lord you know god's moving on bob or he needs help to sit (laughs) on the stage i'll trust your Discernment to do that. It's not that bad. It's just a little feel a little rocky at times. And today's the first day I had. Yesterday was the first day I had that. It's been an interesting week. So a couple of weeks. Um, Okay, so recap. We're in our season of rest, which we recognize for being a sabbatical people. We're at rest from our own ambitions and works. Hebrews calls them dead works. But we're alive and active in God's works, which means we're alive and active in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We can't be yielded to the Spirit fully and be anxious and be stressed out. Now, we're always in a battle to get to that place, or we're often in a battle to some degree. But still, to be active in the Spirit is to be in Sabbath. And so for us, rest, a season of rest is also an emphasis on increasing our power in the Lord. Or to put it in terms of our motto, we are increasing uh, our discovery of powerful living in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're emphasizing here. Now, prophetically, I felt very distinctly, very strongly, that we are being prepared by the Lord. Okay? So generally, we want to increase in power. That's a little bit more... Of a literal translation of Ephesians six ten, which is our goal scripturally here, to become more powerful in the Lord. Uh, but but I also felt that the Lord was leading us to become more powerful because He's assigning to us a task to confront a certain principality, a religious spirit over our region. What that what that will look like? Whether there will be a day we'll all lock arms? And have a prayer meeting, it may very well be. But uh, the way I see the the wisdom of God in Ephesians is we do perhaps 90% of our warfare just embodying the Messiah as the scriptures teach us. To become the church uh, and to be conformed to his image as a church, as he calls us to in scripture, that takes care of the great majority of spiritual warfare in any region or any city. But then on that basis, we have to confront at times. Jesus did. We will have to. We talked about the man of the Gadarenes. And we talked about a whole region uh, getting uh, liberated, in a sense, to where there was an open door for mission that was fluid. And that, that's the ultimate goal. You know, it's chain reaction discipleship that's a church planting movement that fills a city and a region with Christ. And everything that comes with that, that is the eternal purpose of God and what it looks like on this side of eternity is is a church that's expanding through linear discipleship. So that's what we're going for here. But we need to prepare ourselves, even as we are growing, we need to prepare ourselves by conforming ever increasingly to the wisdom of the Scriptures in Ephesians 1 through five and a half to get to that climactic point, whatever it will look like, when we'll be capable of confronting this thing on a higher level, than just the victories we need to be having in our personal lives and in our family lives day to day. We walk in that victory. But to take a city from an apostolic point of view requires the church to yield itself to Jesus and become the church that's called for in the scriptures, which is not as popular as kind of the day-to-day prophetic victories that we long for and pine for. To do it as a church and to start dealing with opening up huge gateways in regions and in cities is a wholly different issue. And that's what, to some degree, we're going for here. We're not making too big of claims. We're just trying to get a hold of what the Spirit's saying and obey that. So we started in Ephesians 6, but then we looked at chapter 1. I'm thinking I'm going to read some portions of chapter 1 again as part of our recap. So uh, please allow me to do that. We'll just spend some time reading the scriptures here. Maybe I'll skip around be as quick as I can, but I'll I'll look at Ephesians 1, verse 3. Paul begins with praise, which was part of the point. That's a triple P, part of the point, praise. How blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the one who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly regions in the Messiah in the same way that He chose us in Him before the world began, to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He also predetermined to adopt us as His own children through Jesus the Messiah, according to the great pleasure that He takes in His plan. All for the acclaim due the splendor of His grace, the grace by which He showered us with favor in the Beloved. We're in verse 7 now. In Him we possess liberation through His blood, the pardon of our offenses, according to the wealth of His grace, which He lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His plan, according to His great pleasure, which He set forth in Him, for the stewardship of the fullness of the times, to sum up all things in the Messiah, everything in the heavens and everything on the earth in him, in whom it was predetermined that we would receive an inheritance according to the purpose of the one who works everything out according to the counsel of his plan so that those of us who've already put our hope in the Messiah might embody the acclaim due His splendor, in whom you also, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, after also believing in Him, you were sealed by the promised Spirit, the Holy One, who is the deposit of our inheritance until the liberation of this special possession resulting in the acclaim due His splendor. Paul is praising the Lord for the covenant blessings that we have as believers in the Messiah. We've inherited a massive uh, inheritance that's entirely spiritual with all kinds of physical ramifications. But then we'll come in on that day. We'll come into a whole new world renewed by this new covenant. By the power of God. So Paul's praising the Lord because he's like, wow, here you have all these wacko Gentiles who are chasing everything under the sun lighting candles and offering sacrifices to every kind of God and praying to, to appease all these different spirits. And the, this gospel message of the Jewish Messiah is going to them and they're believing and they're coming in and they're inheriting this massive inheritance of the Holy Spirit. All the promises now and all the promises of the age to come. Praise the Lord. Paul is celebrating in praise the, this inheritance of these... Amazing covenant blessings. And our first step, therefore, in preparing, in becoming more powerful, is to praise the Lord. Our calling, first and foremost, is to be a people that are truly captivated by God's beauty and by God's grace, so that we are speaking and singing and really inebriated by his highest praises. First and foremost, before anything else, we're people who just Love the Lord and we really appreciate how wonderful he is and all the wonderful things he has done for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our chapter two point here really is going to dovetail with that. So let's recap that by saying it. Let's just let's really press in to the beauty of the Lord and recount his blessings and, and let that have an impact on our hearts more than it has before. Let's break through to a whole new level of the goodness of God. Now Ephesians one gets specific; it recounts these covenantal blessings. So I more than encourage us all to 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 exercise through that to get specific with this first chapter and and you know stare into the Lord through these words and these promises. I find myself moving actually. I should maybe slide this with me because um, I see the center is more over here. So I'm trying to be central. Um, Yeah, like I didn't need to go through all that, did I? Let's use Ephesians 1, but let's all also just soar and really press in. Like John Piper says, right, Riley? I'm thinking of a John Piper quote. We were talking about John Piper earlier. We get so used to nibbling on temporary things, and we keep our appetite curbed for feasting on the great things that are eternal. We, we, We nibble so much on the little things of the world, it keeps our appetite suppressed. For feasting on the great things that are eternal and that are large and huge. So let's, let's, you know, use our season of prayer and fasting, even if part of it is to develop a a new kind of pressing in, a a new time slot, a, a new method of meditating where we build our appetite for God. Where we're not nibblers on the little table scraps of the world but we're those who feast on the greatness of God. It's part of our inheritance. I, I read it this morning out of the Psalms. I try to start my praise with the Psalms. He clothes himself with majesty. And that's large vocabulary, especially if you meditate into it. You know, and I took time to think about what that means, and it's awesome. And it enabled me to feast on the sovereignty of God and use my mind and heart and body and faculties for what it's meant to, and that's to feast on the greatness of God, and find myself immersed therein. Amen. Well, we can't be powerful without being a God-word and God-centered and God-inebriated people. Amen? So let's go for it. Let me let me remind us along those lines of what David says. Psalm 27, verse 4. We're familiar with it. Really, the whole psalm, the context is important. But one thing I've asked and that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. So that's a great verse for us because it talks about the beauty of Yahweh. But but it also gives some really good practical tips. As general as they are, I'm going to run through them very quickly. Number one, David does not ask or seek simply to see the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord has contexts. context. Uh, context. So he asks and seeks the context in which he knows God's beauty is manifest. And that is the house of the Lord. Right? He doesn't say, one thing I ask that I shall seek, that I may see your beauty. He says, that I may dwell in your house to see your beauty. Because in in David's mind, God's beauty has an address. And if he wants to go where God is, he's going to go to where he lives. Now, David is the, the one who paved the way for the temple to be built. He had a tabernacle. Moses had a tabernacle. So what temple is he talking about if it isn't even built yet? Well, even in 1 Samuel 3, where the tent of Moses was in Shiloh and the ark was there, they called that the temple and the house of the Lord. So David's still referring to the, to the tabernacle. And then he built his own. So he just wanted to hang around that area. You know, He loved that area. To be near the Lord. But there's also the spiritual ramifications, of course, of David just personally connecting with the Lord. Because his body, especially for us in the new covenant, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever we carve out time and place to be with the Lord, there's like a house created, so to speak. Because we're the tent. And also, of course, it's the gathering of the saints. That's the house of the Lord. I mean, we saw and tasted of beauties just tonight during worship and prayer and prophetic ministry and exhortations that if we're really paying attention and focusing, we're seeing beauties that we wouldn't see without one another. That's why it's so precious to the Lord to have His house built His way. Because we create the different Rooms of the house that God fills with his glory. That's why it's really important to me and people like me that we get the house of the Lord built with his wisdom, not with conventional wisdom. Because then his beauty can't fill, fill it to the full, both, uh, both of which are terms that Paul uses in Ephesians, that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. His body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, when we, unless we're put together like all the different rooms of a house... We won't see the beauty of the Lord the way it's meant to be seen. So, between our private connection with the Lord—that is, the house of the Lord—and then gathering as saints, those are the contexts in which we see the beauty of the Lord. So, let's praise the Lord. I remember uh, this this lady, very charismatic woman, who's now with the Lord, uh, who was known for intercession in Israel and lots of like spiritual, almost mystic type writing. And she would say, um, how did she put that? I remember being at a conference. She said, praise the Lord until the spirit of worship comes. And when the spirit of worship comes, worship until the spirit of glory comes. And when the spirit of glory comes, she would say, stand in the glory. You know, just be in God's presence. And I thought, that's pretty cool, you know, and I know she's getting that off of her experience. But I, I, I love the way that there's a pattern that I believe is even reflected to some degree in Ephesians chapter one. I'm going to change gears a little bit, but I I like that because sometimes your heart has to get conditioned and press in until something snaps into a whole new place with the Lord. It's always good, I feel, to start with praise and thanksgiving. That's the way I always enter God's gates unless there's something so pressing on my mind. I'm not religious about it. But uh, I find that when I'm entering in with that mode, that spirit of thanksgiving yields a higher praise and then a level of intimacy and depth that turns into something that I would call adoration, more of worship and, and interaction and unspoken things are being spoken and felt and it's just deeper. And then sometimes, I mean, the way she describes it, it's like a one, two, three. For me, it's not so much. But sometimes that sense of presence that's more overwhelming is just there. And you have fellowship as you see fit, as God sees fit. But I've also noticed when I'm at a place that's higher on the mountain, to my surprise, I'll begin to intercede for others specifically. Whereas I thought I was just going to ride a wave of glory. And be like, I don't even want to leave this place. You know, if this is, this is feasting on God and I'm feeling things even in my body and this is awesome. The next thing you know, it's like I get a burden for something or someone and I see needs in my city. I'm like, oh, you know, I, and, and then I pray for that. Well, when we're rising up to the mountaintop, we're with God, and it's not just a matter of our experience of worship. And now we're sharing His heart. Amen. We're after His heart, and if God's burden for this or that, then it's just as much worship to share that burden and to intercede. Amen. It's a house of Amen. Well, that's where this, 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 the third third of Ephesians one goes. It goes from high praise into intercession. From that place of adoration, Paul says, Now, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, I mean, I I bear daily the burdens of the churches. You guys need more connection with the Lord, Paul says to those of Asia Minor. You need a spirit of wisdom and revelation. You need a, a deeper, imparted conviction about who God is and what this plan in Christ is all about so that you can walk in a way that corresponds to the greatness of the plan. And you can't get that by me just writing this or, or, or yelling at you, I've got to pray for breakthrough. So that's the other aspect of our recap. If we're going to be powerful, when we're on that high place of praise and worship, we must transfer that also into intercession for one another and for our city according to the wisdom of the prayer of Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 15 through 22. Can we incorporate that into our time of prayer and fasting for the rest of January or whatever we're going to do? If nothing else, just let's let's commit ourselves to this. Let's pray the Ephesians 1 prayer for one another and for our city. Amen? Because I'm telling you why. Because that's, those are fundamental apostolic prayers that create the house that God wants created. And number two, God will answer that prayer. I've prayed that prayer for these churches and for our city for years, for years. It's an effective prayer. there's a reason why it's printed in there. let's devote ourselves to prayer there. not prayer bear, prayer there, right? Now I'm not going to read the prayer here. shouldn't that be what I do though? Should I read the prayer? that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. So He's praying for an internal work, for something to pop open by the presence of the Spirit, to see the mystery of God's eternal plan and what it means rack. Para- it's like a combination of glory and, and, and earthiness in the prayer. That's why Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We love revelation, wisdom not so much because it, 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 it requires us to get traction on the things we're praying for, the things we're learning, and then that requires our whole lives to be geared in that direction. Because revelation, you could just sleep and have a dream in the night, or go to an awesome meeting. But wisdom means you conduct your whole life with it, uh, in accordance with it, right? So Paul prays in that order for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Because wisdom builds the house. Wisdom gets rolls up the sleeves and builds according to the revelation. Revelation isn't enough. That's why prophetic ministry isn't enough. Apostles are first in the church. Because they set this thing, they, they set it in motion the right way. All right. So, uh, you know, eyes of the heart open. It's it's personal, it's deep, and it's, it's revelatory, it's impartational. Paul prays continually for this, that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to know the hope of His calling, the wealth of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the, sur- the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church now that's that's a pretty large statement he he what what does it say he um when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Man, that is one sovereign man. Jesus is a man who's the King and Lord over all creation. Over every spirit, every nation, every angelic being on the council of the Lord. Every corner of lower and higher creation. He reigns supreme over it all with crowns and blazing eyes. And he's coming back to renew the earth and establish all that glory on the earth as it is in heaven. Paul says of him in his intercessory prayer that he is the head over all things to the church. That is, he's the sovereign over all creation without exception for the benefit of this band of people who live on the earth believing in him. It's at their. The sovereignty is at our disposal as his body, for his purposes. So he's the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians chapter two. Let's read that and and I have a few comments about that because we're continuing our journey to prepare ourselves. For war, we're continuing our journey to become more powerful in the Lord. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You guys there? And you were dead in your offenses and sins. Now, forgive me for a We'll pause now and again. I'm already pausing. Paul is launching in now to teaching. It's an explanation of where they were, where we were, and now where we are. But he gets very specific, so we have to track with him when he gets specific. Because he has an agenda, which is the eternal purpose embodied by the church. That's Paul's agenda, that's what he's after. The authentic New Testament church. Because that's God's eternal purpose, right? Part of his advice to us in becoming powerful is to remember grace. We become powerful by always remembering Grace. Now our memory has to be uh, active. It has to be intentional. That's what he's after. Okay, so it matters what we think about. Paul was a very biblical thinker. And he wants people to think biblically. Like we actually think this way. We make our minds recount What God has done for us. You see how it overlaps with the praise chapter. But there it was an explosion of praise. Here it becomes a more detailed teaching. To inspire us to become a certain kind of people. Because he's going to get specific. We tend to make grace too abstract. Now Paul starts that way. It's fine. And we make doctrines out of it. That are just general doctrines of grace. We need to get more specific. We need to get scriptural. And what I would call apostolic. But, but that's exactly what we're talking about. So I'll get to that. So this is why Paul begins the way he does. You used to be dead. I don't care if you breathed air as a human. And you were biologically alive. Spiritually you were dead. Really like we were dead. Truly dead. And of course the good news is. By sheer grace. God made us alive. In that Little swing of words that Paul uses when we finally get there. He, he barely mentions our participation. He does more in chapter one. When you believed. <laughs> but in, in this one, it's like he made you alive. Because he did so much, and we did so little. Essentially, we, in one way, we did nothing. We kinda did something, but we really did nothing. That he doesn't even mention our part. Cause it's all God. Alright. It's important that we actively remember this. This isn't just Christianity 101. This is for advanced disciples to train our minds to remember what we used to be in one sense, and now what God has brought us into. It's very important for a host of reasons. Too many for me to try to recount here. We'll just read on. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you used to walk. According to this world's present age, which doesn't just refer to an era, it refers to a way of life, which he expounds on now. So this, you used to walk according to these offenses, according to this world's present age, according to the ruler over the authority in the air, the spirit that's now operating in the sons of disobedience. This is one of the places where we get the doctrine of original sin. These are sons and daughters of disobedience. They're like children of it. It's passed on. It's a family affair, this disobedience of the world. Among them, Paul says, even we used to conduct our lives. This is important. Who's even we? Well, we Christians who are now saved. No, Paul's speaking to Christians. Paul's talking about the Jews. Even we who had covenant with God and who had the law, even we used to conduct our lives that same way as you Gentiles, frankly. Because there's a category that Paul thinks and lives in that's changed since Christ, but he still thinks in reference to the category of Jews and Gentiles. In the right way, in the light of the Messiah. His whole point is now a whole new man has been created. But he says, even we, he's talking about we Jewish dudes who would never do what you all Gentiles did, which he calls them. You are without faith and you are without God in the world. Remember, was it? Is that still to come or did I already read that? Or is it the the, the word is we, we get the word atheist from it. You are godless. You are without hope. You are without God. You're just a bunch of Gentiles. You didn't, you know, like the people of Nineveh. You didn't know your right hand from your left. But you know what? We who had the law, we lived according to what he says here. Even we used to conduct our lives by the cravings of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of our flesh and imaginations. And we were by nature children of wrath just like everyone else. And there's some more. What's the the original sin doctrine there? By nature... We were children of wrath, just like everyone else. Jews and Gentiles, all the same. Very much, you know, echoing the themes of Romans, just all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We Jews have advantages because of the covenants and the, 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 the Torah and etc., but we live the same way. We all need the same Messiah, same faith, same justification. The glory of it is these Jews are getting this new message where they receive the Holy Spirit. But the thing's being now blasted among the nations. And all come in the same covenant status. It's unbelievable. Paul is on that track here. It must be important. We, we've got to break kind of like the Western Christian mindset that gives us an implicit ethnocentricity like it's all about us. It's all about, and I love my nation and the freedom we have here. And First Timothy 2, the, the, the enough peace and tranquility and freedom to proclaim the gospel. And I like that and want that. But I don't want to interpret the Bible or the way we do church through that. Because we've made it all about now the image and about us and consumerism. And we, we can't be church's consumers. That's okay. I just have to pause this i of on the microphone. We can't be a church of consumers and address the principality in the air with any authority. We, we can't have a Western mindset. We have to think in biblical categories and live in biblical categories. The, the same Bible was written in the first century. It's now, isn't it the 21st century now? And it says the same thing. Okay? You used to be outside, you Gentiles. Now you're inside. We don't think that way. We think American Christianity and everybody else not you and me, we, but kind of the American Christians with our history and our religious freedom, we kind of think we're the center of the world implicitly. We're not. The center of the world is Israel and then Jews and Gentiles, that's the category, that's where things come from. It's all going back there. We have to get on that plan if we're going to have authority based on the way we're walking in grace to confront a principality. If we don't have a concept of the international community, of Jews and Gentiles, and what Christ is doing therein, we won't have a concept of the local community. The ones to whom Paul's writing in Ephesians are mostly Gentile believers. Perhaps also, they're all Gentiles, because he says even, you know, we Jews, but then you all did this way. He's thinking in these categories, right? So even they have to understand, remember what you were and where you came from. So that you can apply it on the ground in the way you do church. Which is what he talks about in Ephesians 4. Unity of the spirit. Build this body. But we have to do it on the right foundation. So we were just like you, he says. We were by nature at the end of verse 3. Children of wrath just like everyone else. But God who is wealthy in mercy because of the massive love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our offenses, made us alive together with the Messiah. By grace, you have been delivered. That's an interjection. He's not quite making that point yet, but he couldn't help himself. He's shouting. I even have the exclamation point right here in in my translation. So, Even when we were dead in our offenses, he made us alive together with the Messiah. By grace you've been delivered. And he continues this thought. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly regions in the Messiah Jesus so that the unsurpassed wealth of his grace rooted in his kind-heartedness toward us in the Messiah Jesus might be displayed in the coming ages. For by grace... You have indeed been delivered through faith. And this has no origin in you. It is God's gift. It has no origin in works so that no one may boast. For we are his handiwork created in the Messiah Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. Paul's simply reminding us of what grace has done in our lives. We were dead and lost, and God just intervened. And Paul's basically saying, remember that. Now, he's going to say it explicitly in a minute. But basically, he's saying, remember this. Keep it in front of you. Don't take it for granted. And when we don't take it for granted, but rather have our gratitude and our vision of where we've been and what we have now, it just gives us that the, the edge of faithful stewardship. It's like, man, I owe you a debt of gratitude. I can never pay you back. But the way I live is going to be as if my heart wants to pay you back. Which is language, by the way, that Paul uses. It's like, I can never pay you back, but I live by the grace you gave me. In other words, I'm a faithful steward. I'm going to live a life of gratitude to you. So, so should we. I mean, I think sometimes, I wish I thought more, but I think sometimes... Man, I got born again, not just general thinking about what I'm about to say. It's probably true, though. I was saved at 16 years old, just about to turn 17. And I'm thankful to God. Sometimes I think, what in the world would my life be right now? If God had not intervened at that point in my life. Because I don't have like the most radical of testimonies. But I did enough stupid, wicked things. to, And I even sobered up a bit by that time. Because some things happened that kind of scared me into reality without even the Lord yet. But still, if I could do that, it's like, what would have come of me by this time? I'm 52 years old. Every, anything that I have in my my life that is any good comes because of Jesus intervening. Period. I have nothing that doesn't come because of what. Where would I have been? Would I even be alive? Would I have gotten involved with people in some stupid business that they were doing everything illegal? Could I be in jail today and on my way to hell either way? <laughs> would it, could I be strung out on drugs? You know, Would, would I be like an addict? Would, I, would there be anything left of me? I mean, thank God he intervened and I've been living all these years walking with the Lord and producing fruit. For the age to come that God will benefit me with for, for my, the things I've done and, and our family. And oh my goodness, I mean, I've got my own kids that we started from scratch with the Lord. You know, praise the Lord. And, and if I hadn't gotten saved that early, I'd never have anybody like Gina. There's no way some, you know, whatever. If I, I would never have gotten Gina. I got, I got probably saved just On time to develop enough maturity to marry her and I barely made that. (laughs) Thank God for his intervening grace. Just like, you know, the Lord appeared to Saul in the midst of his darkness and sin. On his way to kill Christians or at least imprison them that they might be put to death. The Lord just appeared to him. And we've had, we all have our own version of that. Like I said, I don't even have the most radical testimony. It's like, wow, you were there in the gutter. I'm just listening to a testimony today. And this gal was just in the worst condition. And the Lord just came into her prison cell. I'm like, that is so awesome. Mine doesn't have that much drama. My, my testimony may not be as interesting, but he basically did the same thing to me and he did the same thing to you. It doesn't matter how he came. Amen. He didn't physically come into my prison cell. I wasn't in a prison cell. I was doing a, a paper on Prophecy. In a, in a class about the occult. I was in 10th grade. I won't give you the whole story. I was in 10th grade. And my teacher on a class uh, in a class on mythology turned the class into a class about the occult. And we were learning about ghosts and demons and all kinds of magic powers. I loved it. Then she showed this movie about some prophet. He wasn't a biblical prophet. He was a pagan prophet. And I thought, that's the coolest thing I ever saw, right there, prophecy. He (laughs) predicted things that came to pass. I like this. I like this film about prophecy and this class on the occult. I like See, who knows where I would have been? This is cool. I like this. So I thought, that's what I'm doing my five-page paper on, on prophecy. So I went to the library to get some books, and I found a book on biblical prophecy. I pulled that off the shelf, and that was the beginning of the end. I'm like, the Bible says this? I don't know the Bible says this. I did the whole paper, except for page one. The whole paper on biblical prophecy was totally unsaved. I wrote about the return of Jesus Christ. I remember taking notes, reading my book, looking over my shoulder, thinking, I, I am not ready for this man to return to the earth. I am not ready for this. I literally was looking over my shoulder, thinking, because I was already having a f- few traumatic experiences at that time in my life, I was hearing voices. Did What's that? Did you get on it? Oh, yeah, that teacher loved me, man. <laughs> she accepted it. She was, she was tolerant enough to accept something like this. And I'm glad I wrote it. I think it was kind of a witness, though I didn't get saved at that time. It totally set me up. I thought, man, Jesus is coming back. The Bible predicts the end of the world. I ain't ready. And for whatever reason, I just believed what the Bible said. And I knew I wasn't a Bible-believing Christian. And so then when I came into a church sometime later and the pastor's teaching on end times issues, I'm like, okay. My mother's like, why don't you go forward, Bobby? <laughs> because the pastor gave an altar call one day. I'm just standing there. Why don't you go forward and pray with your sisters, Bobby? So I did. And some Italian dude led me to the Lord, man. He had really minty, licorice breath. <laughs> man, was, he was, um, he was altar call ready, man. This guy was dressed, he was dressed to the nines. Even his nails were done. And I'm like, I don't understand everything you're telling me, but if I give my life to Jesus like you're telling me, do I, do I escape his wrath? <laughs> Some people don't even believe in getting saved that way. I got saved that way. He's like, yes, you do. I'm like, pray on. <laughs> And I did, I gave my heart to the Lord then. I struggled a bit at first, but not for long. I surrendered to Jesus. Um, Thank God for that intervention. Through a class on the occult in a high school. And that teacher had no right to do that. It was a class class on Greek mythology. But if she hadn't switched it, I wouldn't have gotten saved. What the devil meant for evil, God turned for the good. Thank God for his intervention of grace. We should think about these things and let them start to you know, get out of our brains into our hearts. All right. In fact, that's where we're going with this. Look at verse 11. So Paul says, that is why you should remember. And that's the central command exhortation of this message and frankly of, of chapter 2. Remember. Remember what God has done, which we just did. As an example. But he gets specific in a minute toward his agenda. So we're going to follow him. We're going to hang out and remember for another minute, but we're going to follow him through. So let's go. All right, so that's why you should remember that previously, you Gentiles in the flesh, those called uncircumcision by the group called circumcision, which is made by hand in the flesh, that you... Were at. Here's our verse. <laughs> that you were at that time separate from the Messiah. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. See, we're not just Americans who got saved. We're Gentiles. We were not born ethnically in the people who are targeted for the promises. Now we find out later the whole reason why God chose them was to... Bring the message to us. We should all remember that too. So should Israel. Whenever God chooses the one, it's to serve everyone else. Come on. We should not be afraid of focusing on Israel's promises. Because the reason why they're special is to serve everyone else just the way we all should be. So when your mama tells you you're special, you take that into your heart, young man or young woman, woman. And you feel special and then start serving people with how special you are. Because that's why you're special. Because you have something to offer others. It's not for you. It's for us. And so are we for you. That's the way you get community, which is why Paul can speak so bluntly about Israel and Gentiles. Because the local house churches should reflect this mystery. You're like, dude, really? That's, yeah, here it is in our Bible. This is what I read in my Bible. I'm not just off in la-la land. It's the way Paul did it. It's like, big picture. Chapter 4, get along with one another. Because the mystery of the ages hinges on the way you treat one another and witness to your world. You can't be a weekly conference and embody this mystery. You can't do it. It's exactly where he's going with it. I just gave you the whole deal. All right. So, verse 12, you were at that time separate from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, possessing no hope and godless in the world. Literally, you were all atheists. And Gentiles believed in any and every god under the sun. They considered Jews atheists because they only believed in one god. So Paul turns the table and says, you all were atheists. Because you didn't have any God. You called them gods, but they were no gods. There's only one God, and he's the only one you didn't have. You were all atheists. That is an indictment, man. Strangers to the covenants of promise. I mean, this is not the verse you meditate on without going further if you're feeling a little of that orphan spirit. Separate, alienated, strangers, no hope, godless. If you're at IHOP, you don't just sing that verse, right? you got to move on. You need context. Separate. Separate. Strangers. Aliens. Verse 13. But now, in the Messiah Jesus, you who used to be so far away, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace, the one who formed both groups into one and demolished the barriers boundary wall, having also abolished in his flesh the hostility The law of commands and decrees, so that in himself he might mold the two into one new human, thereby forming peace. There, my friends, is the true United Nations right there. Only in the Messiah. The creator at the beginning is the creator of the world now. In Messiah through the blood. And, verse 16, that he might reconcile both groups in one body to God through the cross, having killed the hostility in himself. And when he came, he announced the gospel of peace. Literally, he evangelized peace. It's just the verb evangelize, but the topic was peace. Because the gospel's ultimate goal is the peaceful coalition of nations, the blending of a family Where there used to be walls and divisions, that's the culminating, that's the crowning achievement of the gospel—that a people is made, that's reconciled as brothers and sisters that didn't even like each other before. That—that is the crowning achievement. That's the eternal purpose on this side of heaven. That's the mystery that you can hear doctrinally, but we have to catch it in our hearts so that we'll live a certain way on the earth. Do you see what I'm saying? The big picture. Do you see what I'm saying? I think you do. I think I do. But it doesn't matter what we answer right now It matters what the spirit is putting in our hearts But at least we got to get the data clear right? The big picture Is to unite Jews and Gentiles In a body Which is the most extraordinary miracle God could perform It's the one that proves He's God Because it's the diversity of the nations Symbolizes the diversity of creation God can bring it all together But only in Christ Only through faith and The building of a new community Only that way that's the ultimate way. Are, are, are you tracking with me? And so we should therefore reflect that in the way we love one another. That's the mystery. If we catch it, it's not just interesting theology. It's like, that's what God's after. To take this fragmented world and make a family mosaic. And then God's embodied. Good, that Right there. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That's why he said that. That's why at the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We think it's like, oh, you mean the symbolism communicates it? No, it's this fellowship that should never be happening around this table. That embodies what the death of Jesus has accomplished. See, we think just in terms of the first part of the chapter, I'm saved. I mean, the occult, the drug, the 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 whatever, the, the, the prostitution uh, testimony, that's awesome. Yes, but do you see where this is going? If you weren't just a sinner, you were way out there as Gentiles. God is recreating the human race yes. through people who already exist by the blood of his son. That's what he's doing, and your churches should reflect that. Not just across the Isle of Jews and Gentiles, but whoever y'all are. This is the mystery. This is why you could talk about it. It's like, yeah, amen, we should, amen. We should be one. It's like, no, you don't understand. It, that is the apostolic urgency. You don't start a church by having a building and getting people in it. A church is a family. And if we're not familyized through Messiah, then we're not a New Testament church. We haven't reached the point. And our witness is weaker than it would be than if we we're embodying what Paul prays we'd embody in Ephesians chapter 1. So that's why he says, remember this. Because this is what you were, but you've been recreated for a reason, and it's this reason. For he himself is our peace. I already read all that, right? So in verse 17, he came. He announced the gospel of peace to you who are so far away, and peace to those who were near. I'm checking my time. That clock is wrong. Oh, I've been going by that deceptive clock. No. <laughs> No, it is right. It's right. This is the time that I started. I didn't get the numbers right. Almost 50 minutes. I'm almost done. Peace to those who are near. Verse 18. Because through him we, that is both groups, possess the same access in one spirit toward the Father. So as a result, you... And here's the IHOP part, guys. Here we go. You are no longer strangers and foreigners but you are co-citizens with the holy ones and members of God's household having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with the capstone being the Messiah Jesus himself in whom the entire building as it's being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's our goal. In whom you also are being built together into God's habitation by the Spirit praise the Lord. So, verse 11, you should remember. That's our theme tonight. I'll say a few things about it. We'll close. I've already said some things about it. I'll say a few more. You should remember, number one, we've already talked about grace, intervening grace. We should make our hearts remember. Not just our minds, but our hearts. You've probably heard me talk about this before, but even scientifically, you know, of course our body works On electricity, to some degree, there's magnetic energy involved, you know, to where like my dad has a pacemaker because when the electric current goes wrong, you can actually fix that for a season and put an electric jolt in there to make the heart work right because there is actual physical power, you know, that our bodies use electric, magnetic, different forces. And the, the magnetic field of the brain goes out about two inches from the skull. So they, so the articles I read say. <laughs> the magnetic field of the heart goes out five to, to twelve feet. The heart is more powerful than the brain. The brain is an organ to process data according to what the heart is saying and doing with life. That's why you can have two equal geniuses interpret the exact same data and one becomes a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, denying God has anything to do with creation. And the other one can be a fervent worshiper of Jesus, believing in the God of creation. Cause it has, it's not the, we, we don't believe with our minds, we believe with our hearts. It's the heart that carries the weight of our personality, our influence, and what influences us. So when we remember these things, we want to remember with our heart. And, and one of those articles showed a picture of, like, a human with the magnetic field of the heart and it's like this globe around this wasn't this was not a a, a, like some new age site this was a some scientific site i heard a lecture about this from a a christian psychologist some years ago she referred to the same website i can't remember what it was right now but it was extraordinary she was showing she was explaining you know even in unsaved people it's the human heart that's what's so influential that's the issue so when we can get, because she works with broken women and some not all of them come for Christian counseling. She works at a secular counseling place. She said when we can get them hope in their heart, they recover. We find ways to get hope in their heart because they've been abandoned, broken, used, abused. Once we can get there, we get them on the road to recovery. All the more when she works with Christians and can be explicit about her Christian faith. It's extraordinary. So I went to one of these sites that had an article It showed the picture of the magnetic Field range of the heart, and the person, the person was encompassed by it. And it only went out like five feet, it could go out as much as twelve feet. That's why when you get a bunch of people in a room together, their hearts can start beating at the same rate. Cause it, there's, there's actually a, there's actually a, a physiological thing that happens. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's awesome. What happens when we're filled with the Spirit? The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So this memory business is not just going through the data. It's getting it in our hearts to influence everything about our lives. Remember, it, we, we must develop a biblical memory in our hearts. This exhortation to remember is not something I want to blow by. I'm, I'm I'm emphasizing it so that we can be mindful of actually developing a heart memory over the things that God has done and where he's going with it. Let's develop a biblical mindset on the heart level. Let's develop a spirit of gratitude that will translate into faithfulness. And let's realize the larger picture of God's eternal plan in our hearts. Again, we go back to Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Because if you could see with the center of your being and that which influences the rest of you and, and the people around you. If you can see this vision and this vision of the kingdom is your what's it, it's, it's, at, it's at your core, then you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You'll build this kind of church. Apparently, we can't be powerful without this. We have to remember where we've been and where we're going. Specifically, we must understand something of God's plan for Israel and how that fits into the picture of his bigger plan for the nations. This is an issue. It's not random, it's biblical. It's not general, it's apostolic. We have to understand that God chose one nation as his inheritance At the time of the Tower of Babel and beyond, he disinherited the nations who didn't want him. And they became the possession of other gods, which are no gods. But one nation had him as God. So that one day he could fulfill his plan and send his inheritance to the other nations so that they might also believe. And now the one nation who was chosen to be the vehicle to the other nations, of course, through their Messiah... But the one that was chosen is the one that's lost and the one whose promise of coming in is what will end the age. We have to have a mindset for this, both so we could pray for Israel, so we can minister to the Jews of our city and so that we could be a family within. Because we don't want to be a family just because it's what we do and we like to hang out. We want to have a theological, biblical vision that inspires us on the ground to what we do day to day, even when we break bread. God wants every tribe, nation, and tongue, right? He wants an international family. I don't, I, I, I don't believe we should just have a burden for our nation and pray for our nation. And then when it comes to Israel, say, yeah, but it's not just about Israel. It's about all the nations. Yeah, but you just prayed for your nation. Why are you allowed to have a prophetic burden? And we're not We're not allowed to emphasize a scriptural burden or we'll be too, too Jew heavy or something. That's not right. That's not God's heart. Okay? We, God wants a family of nations. He wants every ethnic group like a, like a sibling in his house. What do you do when you're mixed like most of us? I don't know. But it all works somehow. Okay? He wants representation from all nations. Okay, which one do I belong to? I don't, I have, so many of us have so many ethnic group backgrounds. Which one do I belong to? This one or that one? The Jew, the Italian? I'm not sure how that gets all sorted out, but there's still promises for that one nation. Okay, If, if you or I were in a family of 10 children, let's say you're one of 10, you're number seven or eight or something. Let's make you number nine. Number one, the elder brother, his name is Izzy. Okay, he's away from the Lord. The other nine siblings are serving the Lord from their heart. They're disciples. They're full of the spirit. They love God. They're involved in dad's ministry. And dad, papa, we'll call him papa. He's a godly man. He's broken before the Lord. He's full of joy. He's full of the spirit. He prays. He loves his kids. He loves the ministry. He he serves in his city. He's this wonderful. I mean, the kids just want to be around him the whole bit. But every once in a while, you get up in the night to go to the bathroom. And as you're walking through the hall, you hear sobbing on the other side of the house. Because your daddy is on the floor sobbing because Izzy is away from the Lord and is away from the family. And he's broken and he's hurt. And he doesn't show up much because he doesn't want to depress the family. But every once in a while when he is there at the dinner table, his eyes just go off. And you see this slight... Twist of pain on his face that you know is attached to that one kid, the firstborn, the one with all these prophetic promises, who's away from God and the family because he's completely estranged. Conflict with the family. He's he's He actually tried to corrupt some of the other kids, had to kick him out of the house. It was terrible. But the, the father is broken over it and you hear his sobs in the night. Even if because you're number nine, you didn't even know Izzy very well. Because he's out of the house by then. Because you love your godly father so much. And you see the pain on his heart. That motivates you enough to say, I'm praying Izzy back in too. Because this just causes father too much pain. Amen. If our father has an elder born, firstborn that he loves that much and it breaks him this much. He's thinking about it day and night that they're lost. Just because we're people after father's heart it should give us a burden for this one nation group to come to the Lord and have those promises fulfilled. And if the frontier area of the Muslim world is a key to that, then we're praying for that. And if all the other nations then to come into their fullness is a part of that, then we're praying for that too because we want Izzy back in the fold. Because it's on our father's heart, if for no other reason, let alone all these other reasons. See, that's the spirit of family, man. I don't know why we get so, I don't know how to say it, doctrinal, sterile, cold about these things. And we have debates over whether or not Israel still has its promises. It's like, dude, what does the scripture say? And where's your heart? God loves all the children. That's why he chose the first one. is to bless the rest. You don't think God's heart's big enough to have a firstborn that has special promises, but he loves all the rest equally? Of course it is. It's eternal. Why should we be jealous? We should be thankful that God affirmed his love for the rest of us nations because he chose one. Whenever God wants the many, he chooses the one. We should be grateful for that choice. This is our Father's way. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's his big eternal idiosyncrasy. We embrace that and we say, yes, we're going to be that kind of church. we got a burden for Israel and the spirit of that familyhood is going to be in our, in, in our tribe also. You see where I'm going with this? Because that's what God's thinking. It's not just doctrine. It's an international family. And if the elder brother is lost, then we should care. And it should translate into something called love in our houses too. It's just a revelation of God, isn't it? So reconciliation of the nations manifests on the local level in churches. That is the eternal purpose of God on this side of the return of Jesus. That's why I don't get satisfied by God moving in a big way at a conference. I think that's awesome, but it's not satisfying. What's satisfying is is when he's embodied in people because that's the eternal purpose. So finally, I'll just say that that's the goal as it was at the end of the chapter we just read. The goal is, for all the reasons aforementioned, the goal is the house of the Lord built God's way. In the spirit of reconciliation and the gospel that we just read about, the goal is the temple of the Lord built God's way. And the degree to which we are willing to embrace that and carry that same spirit and live it out among one another Is the degree to which we're going to have enough power, not perfection, but enough power to confront this principality that is fighting everything I just said. It doesn't even like that the word's getting out. You know, it hasn't been because of the protection of the Lord. The resistance has not been Job level, but we felt the resistance Recently, as we're getting further into this, that's why praying for one another is going to be important over these coming days. Because this isn't just neat stuff to talk about. This is real life. And we want to be willing and together on it and going for it. So that we can see Jesus in our city and whatever else he wants for us. So let's stand together.